Last week we talked about speaking truth and love. And, you know, we're trying to go on this once a, one chapter a week pace, but last week I, you get kind of caught. We've got roughly I got 35, 36 minutes, and I, I kind of flew through the last little section last week. So I'm going to pick back up. The main point is not necessarily going through a chapter, but going through the information and sharing some of that. So let's, let's go back to Leviticus 19, if you will. If you have your Bibles, uh, look up Leviticus 19, chapter uh, verse 15 through 18. Go back and look at that text, and we're going to um, read back through it and and then pick up a little bit where we, we left off last week, talking about how to uh, develop healthy context for, we call it confrontation, but we're talking about the ability to exhort each other, to, to iron sharper than iron, how you speak truth. In each other's life, and one thing that really comes out of it, even discussing this last week, a big part comes out of it is the, the expectation that good relationships are going to lead to the ability to, to deal with truth and confront each other with truth. And so it's more of a lifestyle than it is a confrontation. None of, we shouldn't, we don't, we don't thrive on confrontation. We don't really desire confrontation. Um, but yeah, we need to speak truth to each other. And sometimes we 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 work ourselves up towards this big. And I need to talk to you, and we get all worked up about it. In reality, it's just really this give. It's really, it's not the relationship of a of a counselor speaking to a counselee. It's more one on one, life on life, and sharing truth with each other. So, going back to Luke 19, Leviticus 19, reading this passage, he says, "You shall do no injustice in judgment." We address that question of judgment is the ability to. Make a judgment call, deciding what is right, wrong, good, and bad. We can't just blanketly use the word judgment. We talked about that last week a little bit. It's the ability to discern. You're making a judgment. You need to discern. You need the right tools to discern. It's not based on preferences, personalities, emotions, based on truth, but the ability to, to discern. You shall not be partial to the poor. So last week we talked about what it means to have poor judgment. It's when we're partial, when we're emotional. We talked about some of those things last week. It says, you shall, not, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the, uh, of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a tailbearer among your people, so not a slanderer, talking about people and not talking to people. Most of our problems come from we talk about people instead of just going to them and saying, hey, I, I noticed this, you said this. You know what's going on, and kind of having that that kind of conversation, because we don't have those kind of relationships is really at the heart of the issue. So not slandering, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. We talked about last week that there's this in in churches there's easily this this passive aggressive, slow brewing dislike and disdain because someone may have said something and we don't like somebody the personality kind of grates us we don't go to them and we don't really have a conversation about it but we just let it sit there and one thing he talks about that i thought was very helpful is that even if nothing else is added to that issue it builds and grows it takes a life of its own in other words even if they never say anything else to you and you are successfully able to avoid them in church and you sit on the other side of church and you don't see them, you don't even know they exist because they're on the left wing and you're on the right wing. And so you, you go out one door, they go in the other, and you, even with that, that, that resentment grows because it takes life of its own and continues to, to, to uh, become uh, a problem. It just doesn't stay dormant. So he, he, he talks about that as well. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. 
and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So a few things I want to make sure that we we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to um, just a second to jump across the slides. Let's see the verse. We're not talking about um, conditional love. Let's see. Talked about having a moral obligation to speak truth. Sometimes we have, it's easy for us to hide behind, well, it's none of my business. Well, if you care about somebody, it is your business. If you love somebody, it is your business. You make it your business, not because you want to just put your, you know, just jump in and, and, and it's never easy. And you don't feel like you have the moral authority, the moral right to do it. But actually, you have a moral obligation to speak truth. And so he spoke to, to some of that as we saw back in Leviticus as well. So talk about parents and, and church sometimes. How do we – are we afraid to speak – why are we afraid to speak truth to our children? Talk about sometimes the fear of ostracizing them, the fear of, of uh, pushing them away, the fear of they won't speak to me anymore or whatever it is, the, the, the emotions. We're not talking about young children. Obviously, we talk about a four-, or five-, six-year-old toddler. You'll tell them what you think. But when they get a little bit older and they push back – uh, you don't want to get in that emotional conversation, so you, you start managing it, and sometimes that doesn't um, uh, produce the results that, that you need. I said we're not we're not seeking to be someone else's conscience, not walking around trying to be the the voice of reason in their mind, right? It's uh, I like the way he said here. He says I put down it's a neighbor to neighbor passage, which means it's 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 two equals two believers. Sharing truth one with another. It's not, oh, there's, what did you call me this morning, Fred? Uh, reverential Pope? or High Reverend Most High. There you go. So it's not, it's not someone carrying those titles around, right? It's, it's, it's one believer speaking truth in the light of another, in the life of another, rather, and hopefully having a relationship where uh, if that situation was reversed and, and someone noticed that in me, they would have the freedom to, to do so as well. What I really put down here, you know, is that I put down our lack of relationships might be our greatest hurdle in this matter. Our lack of relationships is probably our greatest hurdle because we're not talking about um, building up to a great confrontational moment. He emphasizes the fact that we're talking about a – we're not seeking confrontation. We're seeking a lifestyle where we're speaking truth in each other's lives. The reality is, you know, you can tell when someone doesn't want to be – Available. You know what I'm saying? You know, they're present, they're there, but they keep you at arm's length because really many times either we do that intentionally or we don't – we do it um, subconsciously. But we, we sit there. We, we don't want people to know too much about us because we really, really don't want people speaking truth into our life. We don't want people giving us what they really think about something. We don't really ask for advice because we really, really don't – I really pretty much know what I want to do. And I don't want to really ask for someone else's opinion about it because they might. And so we, we approach it, and a lot of times our relationships stay superficial intentionally because we don't want to dig a little bit deeper, and we don't want anybody having a really greater insight into, into our lives. So we don't have sometimes those, those frank conversations that are needed that are needed and, and helpful. And the last part, I think, is all about um, biblical conversation begins with my own heart. It begins with my own Examining my own motives, my own weaknesses. It's being aware of those weaknesses. It's being aware of what, what motivates me. Of course, 
confrontation and speaking truth in someone's life is, is not about me. It's about pointing them to Christ. <clears throat> it's not because they didn't listen to my advice, to my opinion. They didn't respect me. They didn't honor me. They didn't uh, give me whatever honor is due, the attention is due. And whatever it is that, that drives me is such an unhealthy way of bringing out confrontation. And we're not confrontation even with our kids. If our confrontation is there because, oh, they didn't give me the re- – they, they disrespected me. What's well, and I respond emotionally to that. It's, it's, it's an unhealthy confrontation. That's not what the intent of that. Con- the intent is to yes, to teach them how to honor the Lord, and when they honor the Lord, they're of course are going to honor their parents as well. But a lot of times we get an emotional confrontation that is not really producing the fruit that we that we that we desire. So it's kind of where we left off last week. And in this chapter 12, he's, he walks through very practical steps. And at the end of this, if we don't have time today, we'll we'll do it next week. To walk through a couple of situations and just have a couple, give us a couple of examples of, of things we might observe and how do we approach it, how do we confront somebody with it, what are some questions we can ask. And so we're going to walk through some of this here. Now before he, he gives us practical steps and talks about the dangers of living uh, duplicitous lives. You know, we, part of the issue that he says that we are dealing with is that we, we don't, we live a Christian life and we live a secular life. This is, you know, the Christian life is what I show up with on Sunday, hopefully. I mean, I hope that if you're going to bring it, your Christian life to, to life, hopefully it's on Sunday you bring it. But um, we live these, we don't live our, our Christian walk seven days a week, 24-7. We're one person here, we're one person there. And when we're talking about, when we're watching a game in the, in the bleachers, we're a totally different monster there. And when we're at work, we're driven like this, and we're at church, we're wearing the Christmas tie because it's the right thing to do. I was kidding about these guys. I need to, I need to up my game here. I don't have – I'm not in the Christmas tie club. I need to fix that. Um, but we don't – we tend to, li- to live lives that are um, not daily walking with the Lord. We, we divide these, these things up. So – it actually, I wrote down here, it's actually what feeds a lot of church hypocrisy. You know, every one of our relationships, every one of our relationships, regardless of the context that we're in, doesn't matter if I'm, at, if I'm at a game, doesn't matter if I'm at work, it doesn't matter if I'm at church, all my relationships should be driven by the same desire to, to please God. It's amazing that you, when you're walking around with kids, now, as your kids are a little bit younger, they want things, they want to do things, they want the right to do things, but as they get a little, little bit older, they walk into those teenage years, and they're going to ask you the inevitable question, well, is it wrong? Am I allowed to? Is it sin? And they're really asking the wrong question. But you're going to have everyone, your kids, as they grow into that age, they're going to ask you those questions, and they're asking the wrong question. The question is not, is it wrong? Is it sinful? Am I allowed to do this? And I have my, one of my daughters asked me that just the other day. Is so-and-so, you know, so-and-so gets an earring. Is that sinful? Is that wrong? They're really asking the wrong questions. It's not about whether or not there's a sin uh, pattern. Now, of course, biblically, biblically, there can be a, an explicit command or direction, and then in that case, we can give it. The question should be what? What should what should we be asking? What question should we be asking? That's the that's the question that should be driving our relationships as well. And that's that's where we should be exhorting and directing those that we engage in our in our relationships. So, what should be the right question that we should be asking ourselves, and that we should be mentoring our children even to ask? Does it glorify the Lord? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Is it, is it 
the best thing? Is it, is it profitable? I mean, those are the questions we should be asking. So I flipped that situation when my daughter was asking the question. I said, the, the question is not, was well, it sinful to have this or sinful to do that? The question is, first of all, how does this glorify the Lord? Is that question, is that even enter the conversation? Is, are, you even discuss, are you even thinking through that way? Are you thinking, well, I want to glorify the Lord, right? I'm a believer. I want to glorify God. Well, is this glorifying to God? Is this pleasing to God? Is this helpful in your relationship with God? Is this the famous, you know, does this draw you further from God or closer? Those are the healthy questions. So in the midst of a relationship, that's, that's what we're driving each other for. It's not, we're not in, a, in a, half of us here are probably raised in, in, in what we consider a legalist background where you, you measure righteousness by the law. So then you do judge by the law. It's not what's pleasing to God is, well, did you abide by so-and-so? You know, do you read so-and-so text? Have you, do you dress this way? Do you talk that way? Do you not? And so we, we measure by the law because that's why we, we're, tra- we're trained to measure spirituality by a certain set of rules. But in reality, it's much more than abiding by rules. It's a, it's a much greater standard, much greater standard than displeasing to God because there are many people who learn how to abide by a set of standards, but their heart was so wicked that the day they didn't have to live by those standards anymore, they blew up. Because in their heart, they were not pleasing to God. They had no understanding of, of, of what that meant. And it also means as a parent. It's also humbling as a parent. Because ultimately, my, my, the desire for my child is not to make him bend to my will. Ultimately, the desire... Now, when he's two, I want him to bend to my will. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but ultimately, I want him to do what? I want him to please God. To live his life in a way and to live her life in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord. It's not about pleasing mom and dad. It's not about worrying about what mom and dad thinks. And mom and dad should not be worried about, boy, are they, are they making life easy for me by not running in the house, by not being loud during a football game, by not interrupting me when I'm trying to do this. Well, it's not about that. So when our relationships are built on what is pleasing to the Lord and my desire is to please God seven days a week, not just... My two-hour window on Sunday morning, but that—that's what permeates my life. Then the relationship I have with you men throughout the week, when I see you guys or I text you guys, is the same thing. What's what's pleasing to the Lord? That should be the the constant drive and and desire. So practical steps that he gives. First step is he gives four steps, and these four steps are how to. How to confront someone, how to deal with something that needs to be dealt with, speaking truth in someone's life. First is consideration. The, first, the consideration portion is answer this question, what does this person need to see? In other words, what are they not seeing that they need to see? Themselves see themselves clearly. They're not, seeing they're, not, they're not seeing themselves clearly. Most people, when they're under a, a, a tense situation, they're under pressure, what happens to the focus? It narrows. The focus narrows. The next thing you know, all you see is what's in front of you, and what's in front of you is a big hurdle or a big problem. And you start seeing things in, uh, in an unhelpful way. I like what he says about um, be, being careful. So, first of all, what does this person see? So, the goal is to provide... I'm sorry, the goal is not to provide a list of uh, offenses, but helping people see themselves for who they are. What's going on in your heart is what he's going to lay out in these four questions. But first thing, what's going on? In other words, what I like about this, we don't, he said, don't, 
He doesn't want us to just jump on a situation. And what happens is someone like Mark. Mark Mark's been in ministry. Mark Hager's been in ministry for many years. So as soon as he hears a word, he already knows the diagnosis and the solution and, and how to fix it. Because he sees these patterns all right. But the danger is what? In my life, danger is what? Oh, I know what's going on. Sure, he's sure he slept in this morning. You know, he probably stayed up late watching Netflix. That's what it is. Well, no, you happen to work late that night. Whatever it is, you know. What I mean, so we we start we we jump and make assumptions, and not very often are those assumptions positive. Assumptions are usually more negative than positive. So we start assuming negative about someone. You know, especially if especially if we didn't feel like getting up that morning. And so, you know, we did, and someone else didn't, and we start thinking things negatively. But what I like to say is, he says, first of all, find out what's going on. What's the situation? What's the context? He says, be careful not to make too many assumptions. Be careful not to make too many assumptions. Find out what's going on in their lives. Don't jump in there and just, you know, you're thinking about it for so long that you're overanalyzing. You think you know what's going on, and you really don't know what's going on. Sit there. Find out the context. What's going on? Circumstances do not force bad decisions. So when you talk about what's going on, it's to understand so that, you know, circumstances do not force someone to make a bad decision. So understand the circumstances. And then a second question, what were you feeling as it was going on? Focus is always away from the context and circumstances. So he's asking this question, what were you feeling as it was going on? He's addressing what we're, we're addressing, not, okay, so so-and-so wrote you a nasty letter. Or so-and-so ignored you. You're, you're convinced that you walked by. I know they saw me. And they looked the other way. I know they're upset with me. It's probably because I gave them that uh, so-and-so gift at Christmas, and it was a recycled gift. I'm sure they knew it was a re, you know, repurposed gift, and, and I'm sure they don't. And you start, you start working yourself up towards something, but the reality is you know, we want to address what they were feeling and why, because you're getting away from the circumstances. What happened to you is only one part of it. The question is, why are, re, are you responding this way to it? That's why, next question, what did you do in response? How is the physical response tied to the heart? So once you've established how the heart feels about something, you know, you're, how do you feel about it? Well, it made me mad. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was scared. I was worried. I was anxious. I was upset. So now you're, you're, you're tying the heart to your circumstances. Here's what happened. But what happened is not, is not the issue. The issue is how I respond to it. It really made me question God. I really was upset about it. I really was angry about it. I really was fearful. And you want to understand the heart emotion that's driving, that's in the driver's seat, and tie that and to under, help them understand that uh, how the, the heart's response is tied or the, the circumstances is tied to their heart's response our physical response to something is fueled by our heart or is indicative of our heart when someone tells me oh so and so happened and so and so did this to me and I'm upset about it they're thinking that my focus is on that person and what they said but really in my heart I'm thinking what's going on in their heart why are they responding this way to it because that's really the issue that we're trying to, to drive Many people fail to see or many people fail to understand that our decisions, our reactions are mirrors to our heart. And our decisions or 
uh, are indicators as to where where our heart is. We don't want to we want to admit to that. Why not? Why is it hard to make that leap between the circumstances that surround me and my heart? How my heart is tied to that? Why is that difficult for us to to make that connection? <laughs> what happens if you don't make the connection? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. If you don't make the connection, then it's not your fault. You blame shift. Bad boss. I wasn't promoted like I should have. They didn't recognize my skill sets. They didn't see me for what I was worth. They didn't recognize that he's this young guy just because he's kissing up to the boss. You know, he gets all these promotions. I... And you know, and, and it's not that these issues are not legitimate in and of themselves, but the issue is not there. The issue is how am I responding to it? Victimizing. Victimizing. And as long as you, as long as you don't make the link between the circumstances and why are you responding that way in your heart, if you don't make that link, then you'll never address the issue. Oh, if they, if they only, well, if they would have said it differently. Okay, so that's, that's all the problem. The only problem is if they would have just worded it differently, then well, if they would have hand, I would have handled it if they would have handled it differently, and we always we always shift blame away from our own heart's reaction and the own needs of the needs of our own hearts. It's important for people to see that their actions are only indirectly tied to circumstances. They're directly linked to the heart. So when people say she made me angry, or I just couldn't forgive her, is really a sign of where their, their heart is, more than it is indicative of where that person is. And when I see a believer respond that way, my greater concern is not, man, why'd they say that to you? It's more, why, you know, how can you respond in a godly way? Because I can't control what that person says out there or your circumstances or, or whatnot. Yes? You can also, the individual, by making that connection too, you can also sometimes... You often learn more about yourself than the other person. Well, why am I responding like this? And you can learn something from every situation or scenario. But what is the Lord trying to teach you? And it's like, what, is, what, what could be, what can I gain from this and turn it to good? And you can't, you can't do that unless you, you take ownership of it or you, you link it to why I respond this way. He says, I, I put this down because I think a lot of times people don't realize as well that blaming circumstances is ultimately blaming God. When you blame your circumstances, ultimately it boils down to blaming God. Now, the unbeliever does that. I find it interesting that the, the unbeliever's argument sometimes trickles down into the believer's argument. The unbeliever's argument is what? Blame the ills of the world on, on God. Why didn't God? I talked to a young young man in my office on, on Friday. Uh, he's got some issues. His issue is first... This girl turned him down, so he's going to take it out on her on dodgeball during PE class. So he's got. He's got what are you reading over there? What are you reading over there, Jeff? Microaggressions over But you know, but instead of so my my first my first instinct to take him and just go right through the the problem anger and drive him all the way down, but. To, to the solution and 
and to whatever we need, to, however we need to address it. But as you start talking to him, start understand the context, what's going on. And you start talking about his life and start understand where he's at in life, and his parents are separated, and uh, the anger. Why did God allow that? You understand that the anger then comes out in many different ways. And my solution for, him, for me is not just to suspend them or in-house, uh, in-school suspension to, you know, to calm them, cool them down, whatever it is, but to understand what is he actually struggling with in his heart and he's responding to circumstances. And it begins with, with a blaming God for something that his parents did by separating, leaving him when he was, he's 15, he's, but when he was 8, 9 years old, living through all that, and now finds this little cutie girl that likes him, and then she wants to, whatever she tells him, and we know we're done, you know, at that age, and uh, comes out in anger. The issue isn't the girl. The issue is, well, if she would have said it nicely, if she would not have embarrassed me, if she hadn't said it in front of the other guys, all that is very circumstantial to what's going on in his heart and helping him know how to how to address the anger in his own heart. Um, why did you do it? This question uncovers the motive. So once you've linked it to the heart, okay, so why did you why did you respond this way? Why are you acting out this way? Well, it's not it's no longer well just because they did this or said this is now it's because well, I I'm angry. I was embarrassed. I want to take revenge. I want them to understand my pain. I want them to feel what I felt. Whatever so that is a previous question. So the the previous question uncovers our thoughts. This question uncovers our, our motives. Why did you do it? What, I mean, what were you trying to accomplish? You sent them this, this nasty email to set their record straight. Well, I like it. You know, people discuss what they do, and I, I, should, I should put down next to it, well, how did that work out for you? Because it's amazing <laughs> to me. You, 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 you give them a biblical path and biblical response. Oh, no. And then they have all the reasons why they did what they did. It's fine. Okay, this is... How did that work out for you? Because the reason why we're here is because it did not work out for you. So how about let's discuss what really is at heart and how to how to connect that and how to how to address that. Hey Jeff, the, those are the four questions in the parenting uh, video, parenting book he's written that we need to ask our kids when we discipline. Those four questions. A, B, C. And it takes a lot more time to walk a child through these questions than just to apply the. R-O-D, right? Uh, it's easier to just sometimes make assumptions, condemn, and just instead of sitting down, understand. So you cheated in class and just beat him for it instead of understanding what him, helping him understand. Oh, you know why you cheated in class? Oh, because the teacher didn't give me enough notice for this test. It wasn't fair. <coughs> And this test is too weighted, and so it's going to give me a B and a 7A, and then all, all the rationale over here, they shift blame, it's everybody else's fault. Well, if they hadn't left their notes where I could see them, you know, I just looked that way. They could have had them. Why were you I mean, we, human nature, man, we are good at dodgeball. And we dodge, and in reality, it's, it's what? Your own pride, maybe fear, whatever it is that, that's driving that. Sinful desire, yes, and how do you address it? And coming to this, why did you do it? 
uncovers and unravels the motivations. Your heart is serving something. And it always ends up being whatever I, I deem to be valuable. Whether it be acceptance, whether it be possessions, whether it's achievement, whether it's my lifestyle, whether it's vengeance, whether it's independence, whether it's glorifying God or not glorifying God. So we all seek those things from situations in, in our relationships, which means most of us are going to constantly battle with the fact that we need relationships to fulfill some of these areas. And when we do that, it creates a dysfunction because we're not using relationships to glorify God or to pursue us pleasing to God. We're using each other's relationships to have acceptance, possession. So we, we need someone telling you, man, you did a great job. I love your teaching. Oh, yes, I'll teach you for another week then. You know, or I love what you're doing. Oh, you get, we need, and so we use relationships to feed sometimes poor motivations. And then when we don't get those motivations, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm tired of this. Man, there's no more fun. There's no more, you know, there's nobody around to tell me I hit it out of the park and that was a home run. That was the best I've ever heard. And I've never heard anybody ever speak on the subject. I mean, you don't have that anymore. It's like, and next thing you know, you, because we, if we're not careful, we use relationships for a purpose that is a selfish purpose and not a, a God-driven purpose. So how, you know, why did you do it? What were you trying to accomplish? Those are these four questions as we walk through, given consideration. It takes time. Time means what? Relationships. It takes time. You can't, you can't, you can't, in a superficial relationship, expect to be able to come at a point where you can speak truth in someone's life because you haven't even come to, to this level of consideration. So he gives four practical steps. The first one's consideration. Second one, well, what was the result? Talks about the consequences. Helps them understand. You know, I, I think every every single person that has been uh, faced with a poor reaction and then consequences, no one in their sinful nature, we expect to have bad consequences for our decisions. We just don't. We're going to be the exception. We're going to be the ones that are going to skirt by this principle that we're going to reap what we're going to sow. So I'm going to, you know, my circumstances permit me to make this decision. Oh, I know God and what God says, but my circumstances, so circumstances over here leads me to this unbiblical decision, but I'm convinced over here that I'm not going to have consequences for it. (laughs) There will be consequences for it. And so addressing the question of um, what were the results we're so easily deceived into thinking that we can skirt God's truth and, and there'll be no consequence for it. Now I understand, you know, we we have a we have a loving God, we have a, a God of grace and mercy, but there's a spiritual principle of of reaping what you sow. And even if we recognize and confess, we still have to pay the weight of lost relationships. Even sometimes if there's repentance and if there's a repentance and reconciliation, sometimes those relationships are still forever scarred. And distant because of some of those some of those things. He underlines the fact that, and then this is important too. There's there's no there's no aha moment that in other words you speak to one person and the light's going to come on. It's going to be it's going to be a, an ongoing relationship that allows you to kind of uh, speak truth. And it's not just going to be this this one four steps conclusion. 
consequences and oh yes i see that i won't change that no it's it's part of a ongoing life and life with with other believers so consideration two confession confession has taken ownership so the, in the in the four practical steps we, he addresses and then we'll look at we're just going to finish those then we'll look at two examples and we'll discuss those next week and kind of walk through this and just go back and forth and discuss them so consideration what does this person need to see that they're not seeing two confession Taking ownership, you know. In other words, this is this is on you. It doesn't matter if this person over here wronged you. Your response to it, you have to own up to your response. You have to own up to where your heart is and why your heart's respond the way it is. Uh, confession is taking ownership, whatever part of the problem. Uh, and I tell you, there's many. The, the temptations are not limited to the secular world if you want to call it that way the temptations are there in ministry there are many many temptations in ministry to, to self-righteousness to to condemnation to bitterness to anger to impatience i mean there's these heart responses are are uh, are prone or are the nature of man that he has to deal with right so confession commitment he says commitment is the first step towards putting on Whereas confession is what I need to get rid of, what I need to put off. And he, he addresses Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 being the here's the things you need to put off and here's the things you need to put on. So basically confession is recognizing these are the things I need to put off that I shouldn't have. And here's the things I need to put on and here's the, the change that is needed. Then change, recognizing that uh, a problem, recognizing the problem and change are not the same. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. We've talked to somebody about you, you've confronted them on something. You, you address it. You feel good about it. So, oof, finally I got what's on. You know, I, I, I got that weight off my heart. But then I kind of stopped there. And what that means is that basically I feel good about the fact that I was able to speak truth from my heart. I got that off my chest. But we never came to the point of actually implementing change. So I walk away with, well, they heard me. I feel better about it. But that's not change. Recognizing the problem is not change. Change comes about when there's a put off and a put on, and and there's so what what you do to to uh, work on that is is to bring up the ability to uh, you know you follow up later, follow up with somebody. Hey man, you know last couple weeks ago you talked about this. You know is there has there been any change on that? How's that how's that going? You know you mentioned a couple weeks ago that you're really bitter with your brother. You haven't talked to him in two years, and you really want to make that better. And, we talked about maybe just writing him a letter. Don't don't bring up all old stuff. Just say, hey, Merry Christmas, and have you had a chance to do that? And you kind of you follow up with that to kind of encourage to not just recognize this problem, but now what do I do about it? So here's what I'm going to do next week. Two two situations we just want to I just want to discuss. Here's I try to ch- choose names where no one was in class with those names and situations that were so. Hopefully, I push put disclaimer somewhere at the bottom, right? I was, I've, I've got a lot of walk through here. Jim, Jim constantly speaks about money, not having enough money, needs to save more for retirement. Seems to be a constant source of stress and worry for him. You think that maybe this is getting a pattern? How do you how do you bridge? How do you, okay? How do we address it? How you walk into that confrontation, if you will, but how do you bring that up and how do you discuss it? Other question, Becky is constantly complaining about her job. Where do you begin? You just walk away. Ah, that's just hey, that's just the nature of job is job. Everybody, we just complain about jobs. But if you see a pattern, someone constantly disgruntled about their work, 
How do you engage him in that? What's going on? You don't walk in there with assumptions. If you would only just do this, you'd be all right. No. Walk in there. How do we engage him? What are some questions? So um, I, I hit two very broad questions that we all deal with, money and work. Uh, so I've got a half, I got like six or seven questions to engage on these things. And then how do we walk them through? What should be the response? How do we walk them through a healthy confrontation and coming out on the other end with how to bring about possible change? So I'm going to send these two questions out to you by email so that you can start thinking about that, what passages to apply, what principles to apply, what questions to ask to kind of have a practical way of how do we engage uh, in this and, and how do we bring about confrontation and, and change. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Thanks for your time. Uh, tonight, Cantata, New Year's, if you can be here with, uh, be with us, let us know. We're looking forward to having spend some time with you guys. So let's pray. Well, Father, we're thankful that we have, we have the word that teaches us truth. It's not just a book of recommendations. It's not just for a good lifestyle. It's the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that speak in truth to us. My desire, Lord, in my life and what it should be daily is to wake up and say, Lord, I want today to be a day that is pleasing to you. How do I please you today, Lord? We could be serving, we could be serving you and not please you because of the heart attitude and the heart disposition. And Lord, how do I align my heart with the truth of your word? So, Lord, I just pray even as we walk through this next week that we might just know how to, to encourage each other, exhort each other in truth. How can we walk our children through these questions as well? And to do so, Lord, in, in a way that is God-honoring. I just pray for this day to pray for Pastor as he brings the word this morning. Pray for those who will be in the cantata and all the, the practicing, just blessing us through worship and music. We just commit this day to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.